Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you, broadcasting on commercial radio stations from coast to coast on Sirius XM all across the North American continent, on Pacifica stations across America, Europe, and Africa, on American Forces Radio, and every U.S. military base in the world, on your electronic devices via TuneIn, Progressive Voices, your smart speaker, and the Tom Hartman app, and simulcast as television by Free Speech TV Network on Dish Network, Direct TV, and cable systems nationwide. Joe Strupp is on the line with us, veteran journalist, former editor and publisher at Media Matters for America, author of the new book, Killing Journalism, How Greed, Laziness, and Donald Trump Are Destroying News and How We Can Save It. His website is joestrupp, S-T-R-U-P-P dot com, and you can tweet him at Joe Strupp. Hey, Joe, welcome to the program. Thanks. Good to be here. As I'm sure you can imagine, uh, I have some strong opinions on this topic, having worked in radio news since literally since the 1970s, in fact, since the late 1960s. I'm curious, how are greed, laziness, and Donald Trump destroying news? And then we'll get to how we can save it once we've diagnosed the problem. Well, one of the things I wanted to do, you know, I've been covering media for about 18 years, first at Editor and Publisher magazine, which covered the newspaper biz, and then at Media Matters for America. And one of the things I found over the years was, before we even met Donald Trump, at least as president or candidate, that news media was having problems with cutbacks, with people going after the easy story, not doing the in-depth story, the advertising problems led to many of the cutbacks, and then corporate takeovers demanded more profits. So the product itself was getting diminished. And I also wanted to counter the claims by a lot of people that it's liberal, left-wing, fake news, that that's the problem. All reporters are lefties and we're slanting news our way, which I don't find to be the truth. Obviously, there are people who want to slant news right or left, but I think that's a very minimal part, as you would probably know, too. Most reporters want to dig out stories get the truth, bring down the corrupt politicians uh, of either side. But they're less likely to do that because there are fewer reporters. There are more demands by online 24-hour news. And there's less money to pay them. There's less money to hire them. And little things like less money to do freedom of information requests, to get legal defense, to really dig out the story. And then we bring in the Internet, which made demands even more great and splintered the audience. And that sort of started even a panic among news outlets. We've got to grab eyes. We've got to grab readers. We've got to grab viewers with the quick, easy, sensational issue. And the more important, sometimes mundane, but 
even more valuable things are not covered. Then, of course, you bring Donald Trump in, who started the attacks on fake news, uh, and he's really only increased them as president. I think some people thought, well, once he got in, things will calm down. I certainly didn't, because I knew, as you probably knew, of his deceit and uh, misrepresentation and anti-press fervor early on, and it's only gotten worse. But it's really a combination of things. It's not just him, but he's definitely the most notable and the most recent to go along with a lot of the just general practices of news that have gotten worse and worse because I think that's where the laziness comes in. Breaking news story hits, you're covering that forever, hours and hours, days and days, while other things aren't getting covered, along with the cutbacks just in staff and resources and the sort of growing mistrust of news, some of which you can blame on Trump, but some of it you can just blame on the way a lot of news is getting handled. So I get that dynamic, and it seems to me that the simplest way that you can bias the news, if you're the filter, if you're the radio or television station or the website or the newspaper or whatever, is simply by picking and choosing among true stories, right? right. So if I wanted to bias my, if I did my own newscast on this show, well, and to a certain extent, this is what you're going to hear from, you know, I'm, this is a progressive opinion show. So the things that tend to reflect that are true stories that reflect poorly on Republicans or reflect well on Democrats are more likely to be heard here than they are on right wing talk radio, where it would be the exact opposite. But the thing that baffles me is that MSNBC, to the best of my knowledge, has not been called out in a factual error or a lie at all in, the, in 2018. CNN did one. And I forget what it was, but Trump tweeted about it for weeks. Of um, course. It, maybe you can remember what it was. But they, had one, they got one thing wrong about one guy. And they apologized right. and they issued corrections. Yeah. And still, Trump tweeted about it for weeks. Fox News, I mean, you worked at Media Matters. Fox News literally lies every day and has yes. since its inception. I mean, it's intrinsic to their DNA. And you'll find the same thing with right-wing hate radio. If you listen to it, you will find that much of what they're talking about is actually grounded on outright deception or such bad distortion of reality that it's functionally deception. Why is that? Because it started from the beginning, the group that I trace a lot of the current conservative media back to the Nixon era when Nixon was in trouble and there was a lot of conservatives coming around to support him. And you can trace it back to the National Review, actually, which started in the 50s, but they were never really big on Totally. Well, I used to read the National Review. My dad yeah. was a big William Buckley fan. Very, I, I don't very, think they lied. Very, you know? very fair-minded, respected publication. Yeah. But I think after the Nixon-Watergate debacle and resignation, there seemed to be this backlash that followed through Gerald Ford, followed through Jimmy Carter. When Reagan came in, that, and I do several chapters in the book on this, when Reagan came in, he got a lot of support from the conservative right, and then talk radio exploded, and it's... Rush Limbaugh was one of the first, but that started this idea that if you are putting out an ideology, whether it's fact-based or not, that's okay. You're trying to get listeners, you're trying to get an audience, you're trying to push a political ideology. And the right was much better, as you know, at pushing that on talk radio and on certain outlets than the liberal side. Um, your show and many others break through because they're so well done, I believe, and there is an audience for it. But the right wing picked up that talk radio void years ago and really ran with it and the facts were not the most important thing and there were many people who were taught for years that the media is liberal that the mainstream outlets are liberal so let me listen to this right-wing view whether they're being honest or not that right. carried into clinton to obama and then of course to trump but you're right we did much at media matters looking just at what is factual and what isn't 
right. and you, by you know, and by, the Fox News or many of the right-wing outlets would just be dishonest, would just be misinterpreting facts and basically lying. And when right. they're called on it, they don't really seem to mind, and a lot of their listeners and viewers don't seem to mind. One of the phrases we always had was, you're entitled to your own opinion, you're not entitled to your own facts. And I'm no loudmouth speaker for the left or the right. I'm a reporter who loves journalism, who has a great deal of respect for the media, and I want it to be honest and fair-minded because I think that plays into people's mistrust a lot more than anything Donald Trump says or any real mistakes. Because you're right, many will make mistakes on the right and the left, but it seems like the left and mainstream are bigger at correcting them and admitting them. And studies yeah. have shown if you correct mistakes, if you admit mistakes, the Houston Chronicle in recent weeks had a big scandal where one of their reporters was making up sources. They dealt with it very openly. He was fired. They had a big internal investigation, a big report in the story and on their website, and it very much diffused the situation. So the people said, okay, here was a mistake. Here's how it happened. It was one person. It was one time. And they cleaned it up. You, you know, the, right? No, you don't. Yeah, we had talk radio in the United States before Limbaugh, though. Yeah. The most famous talker in the country and the largest talker in the country was Alan Berg. He was broadcasting out of Denver. He was on a clear channel station, a 50,000 watt station that was blowing a signal from Alaska down to Mexico and had listeners in, I think it was 27 states. And he was basically doing the same, not the same, but something similar to what I'm doing, you know, more or less progressive perspective. And he was, to the best of my knowledge, always accurate. But he was gunned yes. down by yes. two skinheads in the parking lot of the radio station, as I recall, either the late 70s or early 80s. And then there was this gap for a few years where there was no you know, really big national profile. And then Limbaugh comes in with millions of dollars of funding, debuting on 50 major stations across the country, major money behind him. And now, even to this day, as Ken Vogel pointed out over in Politico about three years ago, Limbaugh and Hannity are still getting literally a million, two million dollar a year subsidies from the Heritage Foundation. I mean, you know, nothing like that even exists on the left. So, A, your thoughts on that, and B, I want to get to the solutions, because we've only got two minutes until we're going to hit a hard break here. Yes, well, one of the reasons that occurred is also that there was a change in AM and FM radio, as you know better than I, that there was a lot of loss of music on AM. That right. FM was coming in the 70s and taking the music away from AM. That opened up a lot of AM stations to some kind of alternative. And the talk took over along with the same time that the Reagan and conservative movement took over, and they were just kind of pushed together. That was a real timing thing. But you're right. Somewhere along the line, the lack of honesty and accuracy was accepted and accepted very much on many on the right, and that's because, believe it or not, they felt they couldn't prove the left-wing bias the way they wanted to, so they felt like, okay, we're going to say that the left is biased and slanting. That makes it yeah. okay for us. It's the doctrine of the noble is, lie. If, if you call yourself conservative, you're giving away your bias right away. Yeah, it's the doctrine of the noble lie. It has a long history. So in the minute and a half, we have left Joe, Joe Strupp, author of Killing Journalism. How do we save journalism? Well, one of the things I look at in the book, and I don't want to end it on a down note because I don't believe it's all a downer, nonprofit sites are a big push now. There's at least 180 of them around the country. The big one well-known in New York is ProPublica. Yeah. There's the Center for Investigative Reporting in California, the New England Investigative Reporting in New England. There's the Marshall Project out of New York, which deals with criminal activity and crime stories. And there is a push for a lot of 
nonprofit entities and foundations who are trying to push for more local news. That's another area that gets struck. Mm-hmm. Very little local reporting, very little state reporting. I get into that in the book as well. And a lot of less legal protection for reporters because there's less money to defend them and to seek things like credentials and access to public information. But I think that's one of the things we look at is nonprofit. I always thought many news outlets should be nonprofit anyway because they are public entities. That's not going to happen maybe as widespread as I would like. But well, these foundations. Prior to 87, nonprofit. when Reagan nuked the Fairness Doctrine, all news was nonprofit. I mean, I, I worked at a radio station in Lansing, Michigan from 68 until 76 or whatever the year was. And, you know, we had five guys in the newsroom. They lost money on that news operation because that was the cost of having a license. That is one of the things now. There's less demand by the FCC to do something that's considered a public service. And there's more corporations and conglomerates taking over, leveraging their money and demanding higher profits, 20, 30 percent from places that used to get away with 8, 10 percent profit because they were locally owned, family owned or were considered public entities that wanted to serve. And the news divisions were not supposed to make money for many years. And then you saw in the late 70s and early 80s, there was more demand for that. So they had to trim costs, increase profit, and that cut a lot of the products down to what it is today. Yeah, there you go. Joe Strupp, a veteran journalist, editor, publisher of Media Matters of America, author of the new book, Killing Journalism, How Greed, Laziness, and Donald Trump are Destroying News and How We Can Save It. Good stuff. JoeStrupp.com. Joe, thanks a lot. Thank you, sir. Great talking with you. You spend every day in your office chair. That's over 2,000 hours a year. So if you're spending all that time in the wrong chair, is it any wonder why you're sore and tired at the end of the day? Ditch that no-name, one-size-fits-all superstore chair and trade up to the X chair. When you feel the X chair difference, you'll understand. My X chair is the most stylish chair I've ever owned. Trust me, this is not your grandfather's office chair. Switching to the X chair, I'm more productive and have more energy. I love my X chair and you will too. X chair is now on sale for the holidays, so buy one for yourself and one for someone you love. X chair is now on sale for $100 off. So call 844-4X-CHAIR or go to xchairtom.com. That's xchairtom.com now to save 100 bucks. And here's a special deal just for my listeners. Use the promo code TOM, T-H-O-M, and they'll even throw in a free footrest. Go to xchairtom or call 844-4X-CHAIR and use the code TOM for a free footrest. That's xchairtom.com, 844-4X-CHAIR. And right now, Matt Taibbi is with us, contributing editor to Rolling Stone magazine, the author of five books, including his latest, Hate Incorporated, How and Why the Press Makes Us Hate One Another. Taibbi.substack.com is the website. You can tweet at mtaibbi, M-T-A-I-B-B-I. Matt, welcome back to the program. It's been a while. Yeah, it's been a while. How's it going, Tom? Very good, thank you. I'm so pleased that you have a new book out, and I'm looking forward to reading it. Can you give us the summary of it, please? Yeah, so it started off as sort of a rethink of manufacturing consent. I even went down to interview Noam Chomsky. That's in the introduction because I felt like I needed to have his blessing to do this project. Mm. But it's morphed into something that's more of a um, confessional about modern reporting techniques and how we're incentivized to sort of monetize divisions within society and especially focusing on campaign journalism. So it's it's really about how campaign reporting is messed up and all the little deceptions in that world and how it drives people to hate each other more than they probably would normally. 
I started in the news business a long time ago. I, I, I think we both did. In my case, it was in 1968. I got a job as a DJ in Lansing, Michigan, and in 71, I moved to news, and I did that until 76 or 78. And if we had a news block to fill, we had a series of news stories. And what we're seeing now is the panelization of news. It's the reality TV comes to news. So right. instead of having you know, an hour to report and doing like BBC or France 24 does where, you know, in that hour, there'll be literally 20 different stories with some, you know, in-depth perspective. There'll be three or four stories for the hour. And each one of those stories will then provoke a 15 minute panel discussion with three, not even experts, three pundits. And it's, people, and it's, it's yeah. super cheap to produce. Right. And that's why they're doing it. But it's like we're being fed hostess Twinkies instead of nutritious food uh, with regard to news. Is that the sort of thing that you're talking about? Or have you identified something yeah. completely different that I'm missing? No, definitely. I, I write about that a lot. And there were huge changes within the business that you talked about some of it. Some of it had to do with the launching of the 24-hour news cycle with CNN. And this incentivized people in the news business financially to drift towards Instead of doing what you were talking about, sort of individually packaged news reports that had some research behind them, suddenly news executives were looking more for stories that had a breaking or a visual element and where you could just sit around and have a bunch of people discussing something as it happened. Right. And that was the cheapest way to, to eat up those oceans of time, but it also led to... Uh, this sort of reality show element that you talk about. And one of the stories that lent itself in the worst way to that format was the campaign story, because it's two years of scheduled contests that you can essentially just talk about in the same way you do with sports radio. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the reasons why the political dialogue has been so degraded since a lot of these changes in the business. Well, and, and one dimension of this is that in sports, basically you're not you're not having a conversation about what the rules of the game should be because they're set. You know, they don't change from day to day. So it's basically there's no discussion about legislation, essentially, about how the NFL should change its policies. It's a discussion about how's this running back doing or, you know, how's that quarterback doing or, you know, did he injure himself this week? Those kind of things. And in politics, we really need to have conversations about this candidate stands for this issue or this set of issues, and here are the consequences of these issues and how they will affect you, and here's how the rules could actually change as a consequence of this person getting elected. And we used to, by the way, talk about politics that way. You know, like I said, I, I started news, geez, what is that, almost 50 years ago. We used to talk about news that way. We don't anymore. Now it's all about personality. It is, as you say, as if it's sports. What do we do about yeah. that? Yeah, I mean, it's a major problem. Again, this has to do with the financial aspect of it and the, the incentives. It's too difficult and sometimes off-putting to your target audiences if you get too deep into issues. So it's much simpler to simply cover it exactly the way we cover sports, which is to have a couple of teams and to talk about which team is going to win and which team isn't. And you invest heavily in all the gibberish that surrounds the contest and the horse race. Right, the polling. That's why the polling, you know, the magic wall that John King has, you know, all, all the fanfare that goes with who's going to win. It's the, the Super Bowl. Thing today. It's the Super Bowl. It's Super Tuesday. We even use the same words. There's literally like a magic number for the delegates, mm. which is the same as the magic number to clinch the pennant. We have 
the road to 270. We have all these things that, that completely borrow from the live variety format of sports programming. And again, it's just completely degraded the conversation. So before I ask you how we fix this, one last quick question here, Matt Taibbi, your new book, Hate Incorporated or Hate Inc. Where does the hate come into this? Well, I think what one of the things that's happened is that the TV, well, the entire news business really learned a lot from the experience of the crossfire format. You know, mm-hmm. when, when cable news in the 80s began to kind of sell the idea of political combat and right. the gladiators. Gladiators, right. And one of the underlying sort of concepts that animates that television show was that you could never have a resolution. The show doesn't work if people come to any kind of kind of agreement or if they enlighten each other. It has to be ongoing, endless, relentless combat. And you even see ridiculous things like Paul Begala and Tucker Carlson being introduced with boxing gloves on before they do get out. And this sort of leaves people with the impression that, that they're rooting, not thinking, you know, right. when they talk about politics. And I think that that's spread to the entire business. And it began really with Fox News that kind of targeted one particular demographic and essentially turned into a, you know, an ongoing pep rally for a certain kind of politics. But I think it's spread to the entire media landscape at this point. And we don't have that kind of meta conversation about you know, politics for everybody anymore. Right. And I think that's so, unfortunate. So, Matt, how do we, there's a few solutions, I suppose, that are relatively obvious, you know, reapplying the, the Sherman Antitrust Act to the media in the United States, you know, breaking up some of the big media, going back to ownership rules like we had before the Telecommunications Act of 96. This would atomize much of this, and but that's not going to affect CNN. I mean, how do, what's, do you have solutions to this? Suggestions? Ideas? Well, I mean, I, I think we have to go back a little bit to the public interest standard. I mean, the original Communications Act in 1934, right. essentially, it was a trade-off. You know, what they said was, you can lease the public airwaves, and you can make money doing entertainment and sports and all that other stuff. But news... You know, you have to do something in the public interest. And it was always sort of understood tacitly, I guess in your generation, maybe my father's generation, he was in the news as well, mm-hmm. that the news could be a loss leader. Oh, it, it was. It was. Yeah. When I worked at Whittle in Lansing, we had five or six people in the newsroom, and they absolutely lost money. And by the way, I would have lost my job if I had been caught talking, even just casually in the hallway, talking with any of the salespeople. There was an absolute right. firewall between sales and news. Yeah, that's another major, major difference. I mean, <laughs> you hear stories about the salespeople not even being allowed on the same floor as the editorial. Yeah, no, I'm serious. Out. Yeah, yeah, we avoided yeah. each other. Yeah, and that's completely different. Now the salespeople more or less completely dictate the editorial. They're suggesting stories. Yeah, I know. It's crazy. So you're saying that if we brought back the Fairness Doctrine, which did not say that if you have an hour of Tom Hartman, you have to have an hour of Rush Limbaugh, and said what it said is if the station itself offers an editorial... They have to provide an identical amount of time for a rebuttal from the opposite side. And the station must program in the public interest, which was broadly understood not just to mean public service announcements, but also to mean a minute of the news or five minutes of news at the top of every hour. Right. And and just going back to that fundamental principle that Reagan blew up in 87 and that Obama finally took off the books two years ago. Is that your main suggestion? I think that's one of them. I mean, I think another one is that news companies should... I think they have a lot of misconceptions about what does and doesn't sell. Right. Um, in my own career, what I've found is 
like for instance, I covered the financial services industry a lot, and I continually heard from people, oh, you, you can't do complicated. Complicated doesn't work you know, in modern media. But actually, if you don't talk down to audiences, they actually dig it. Yeah. You know, and I think that's one of the things that major media companies have to understand is that they have preconceptions about what's commercial and what isn't that are wrong. Yeah. And they need to test those more often. That's a great point. And you can jazz it up a little bit by talking about giant squids. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Matt Taibbi, the, the great Matt Taibbi, contributing editor to Rolling Stone magazine, the author of five books. His latest is Hate Incorporated, how and why the press makes us hate each other or hate one another. Matt, thanks so much for dropping by today. Good luck with the book. Thanks a lot, Tom. Take care. Good talking with you. Tony in Watsonville, California. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. And thanks for uh, you and your crew sharing your time and your knowledge. We're um, having fun. My question it. is about money and politics. Mm -hmm. And uh, I know it's out of control with the Buckley Vallejo thing. So, But I have a caveat. I would like to tax money and politics. You can't beat them, join them. So if they want to keep spending billions, let's go back to 1976, tax progressively so foreign governments corporations get taxed higher and individual donations get taxed lower and then the money goes to fix the voting machines hmm. and they get they want a universal id there you go there's the money to buy a universal id then they can yeah. quit crying about who votes and we'll fix the voting thing and get money out of politics because yeah. republicans don't want to spend money on paying taxes so they'll quit I think that's a brilliant idea, Tony, because you can you can change the tax code without amending the Constitution. And if we simply said any corporation that makes a, a political contribution um, can no longer deduct that from their from their taxes, period, just make them not tax deductible at all. And and any individual who makes a campaign contribution of, say, over a thousand dollars or over five thousand um, dollars or funds any sort of political activity over that tune. Um, there's a tax associated with that. I, you know, I, I believe that would be legal. Um, it may suffer from a First Amendment challenge. They may come forward and say, you know, sort of like a poll tax is 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 a uh, infringement on your right to vote. A money in politics tax is an infringement on your right to influence politics. Your right, of, your First Amendment right of free speech, which is how Buckley and then Citizens United defined that. So I'm guessing that would be the line of attack that they would use. But I, but you're thinking, I, I like your thinking, and it's a great place to start, and hopefully people can pick that up and run with it. Thank you, Tony, for the call. Tony in Huntsville, Alabama. Hey, Tony, what's on your mind today? Tom, how you doing, my friend? Good, what's up? I want to know, if I want to start a news program, is there a standardized working definition of the word news? Or do I just get to say, it's Tony News and then talk about anything. Mm -hmm. What's my responsibility if I say the word news? Our, you know, I, I've seen many working definitions of news over the years, and including the old, uh, probably apocryphal story that the word news itself comes from northeast, west, south. You know, in other words, it's like, let's look all around us at all, you know, everything that's going on. But generally speaking, I have considered the news to be those things that will directly or indirectly impact my life, my quality of life, 
and, and by extension, my country and the quality of life within my country, and also my role as a citizen of the world. So I would obviously want to know about the immediate things like, you know, hey, my taxes are going up or down or a new factory is opening down the street or something like that. But I also would want to know about things like political corruption. And I would also want to know about things like, you know, what's going on around the world. Like, for example, the Senate just heard testimony from Gina Haspel, the head of the CIA, about the Khashoggi murder. And uh, Bob Corker, you know, Republican senator, says we would have convicted uh, Mohammed bin Salman, the Saudi prince, crown prince, in 30 minutes. The jury would convict him in 30 minutes. The evidence was so overwhelming. I, I think that that's news because it actually, uh, it seems like it's way over on the other side of the world. It's a long way from here. He was murdered in Turkey. He, he, he was a Saudi citizen, although he was living in the United States. But I think it's news because it has to do with our being in bed with a despotic regime that murders journalists. And we're buying, I think, 8 or 9% of our oil from them and uh, stuff like that. So that's a fairly broad definition. But is it making sense, Tony? I think it is, but my general question is, who regulates the word? I mean, I, I remember George Carlin did a, did a comedy thing on the seven words you can't say. Right. So if I say news, and then it's all about my opinions on stuff that really doesn't matter except to people that I'm trying to move in a certain direction, that's not news, that's manipulation. Well, that's so, Fox News. But there is no regulation. I mean, the, the Supreme Court has been very, very clear from literally from the very beginning of the Republic that political information and, quote, news are the last things that government may regulate. And so to the best of my knowledge, there's never been any real serious effort to regulate the news outside of the Fairness Doctrine, which really wasn't regulating the news so much as it was demanding that if you have a broadcast license, you actually have to produce actual news. And most well, people know it when they see the it. Problem. That may be the problem, Tom. That You asked your guests what the problem was, and that in itself is the problem. You know, if we can just say anything and it has nothing to do with facts or the common good, you know, we can call it anything. But by using the word news, we give people the impression that we're giving them something that's useful when we're really not. We're just giving them uh, stuff they can't use to manipulate them and sell them stuff. Yeah. And that's the problem. Well, that's, that's the that, problem, Tony. Yeah, I agree, Tony. And that's the really sad thing. You know, I, I mean, I, I can watch three hours straight of CNN or MSNBC and probably Fox. I've never uh, subjected myself to three hours consecutively of Fox. And basically the same three or four stories get recycled every hour with different commentators doing reality show news where they're sitting in a panel and, and commenting on things. If I'm spending three hours watching the news, I'd really like to hear, you know, 30, 40, 50 stories. I'd like to know what's going on in the world. I mean, in that period of time, or even in one hour, I should be able to find out not only what's going on, you know, relatively locally, I should be able to find out what's going on nationally. I should be able to find out the larger dimensions of these things. And I should be able to find out what's going on around the world, at least the things that are consequential, the things that are going to affect me. And so it's a big deal. Tony, I got to move along, but thank you for the call. It's a great question. Riduzone. If you struggle to lose weight, listen carefully. Riduzone works. I've never before endorsed a weight loss product, but I've seen the result firsthand with my brilliant wife, Louise, who, like so many, has had her share of diet frustrations. Losing weight is hard, right? Louise heard about Riduzone. She did her homework, learned it's FDA accepted, and that it helps us lose weight in a revolutionary way. Riduzone comes out of university research that discovered a molecule that helps regulate appetite. When it's out of whack, we're always hungry and crave foods we shouldn't eat. 
and good luck losing weight when you're already starving on day one. Louise tried Ridizone. She looks amazing, and I've never, never seen her this excited about a weight loss product. Listen, when diet and exercise aren't enough and you want to lose the weight you've been struggling to lose, get non-prescription Riduzone. Go to tryriduzone.com and use the promo code TOM, T-H-O-M, to receive up to 65% off on your order and free shipping. That's tryriduzone.com, promo code TOM. Bob in uh, San Jose, California, listening to us on AM 910. Hey, Bob, what's up? Well, I was going to comment, as a person in the broadcast world from the engineering side, I've seen that at one time reporting teams went out to produce a two-minute story. Now it's a talking head yeah. sitting at a desk. Yeah, and it's not just that. much cheaper. And it's not just that. It used to be that if you were doing the news, you had teams of reporters who gathered news. You had reporters who, who wrote the stories. Then you would sit down as essentially the editor, kind of Walter Cronkite, the final editor, and you would decide which stories you were going to do, and you'd massage them and edit them, and you'd come up with your newscast. And you, you would sit there. You might have some fact checkers, too. Right. No, well, I'm going somewhere with this. And you would sit there for an hour, and you would read the news. And it would be story after story after story, and you'd have the appropriate graphics. And, and, and you know, if you had to interview a guest who was an expert on it, you'd have a, a short interview. Now what goes on, and you can see this all day long on the cable TV, now what happens is they'll pick three or four stories and say these are the top stories, and they'll bring each one of those stories up in a block, you know, they'll, they'll open up a, a 10 minute block with the story, and then they'll have three pundits uh, who sit there and discuss it with the supposed news person, and it becomes opinion. And, you know, the, the pundits necess don't necessarily even have anything to do with the news, and there's just massive chunks of news that are not even covered. You will not see this on France 24. You will not see this on the BBC. And you wouldn't have seen this on the, in, in news in the United States prior to maybe, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago. It's like the news has become reality television. And I think also it's been, it, it switched and became all opinion all the time on cable. And I think it's because it's cheaper to produce. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. They're, they're looking at price-earnings ratios. Yeah, and you, get, and you get the pundits in, and they're willing to, you know, on, on national television, they're willing to work for nothing. You know, I mean, I go on Fox News all the time, and they don't pay me, right? They'll send a limo to the house, but that's it. <laughs> or if you're a regular and you're identified as a contributor, you get paid anywhere from $500 to $2,500 every time you show up. But that's a pittance when you look at television production budgets. So this is just, you know, the, 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 the same reason that reality TV took such a big foothold in the television industry after the writers strike when they resorted to this because they you know they they didn't know what else to do and discovered hey this is cheap to produce we don't have to pay writers now they do actually they write reality tv it's all scripted but nonetheless and and people love it you know it sells and and so that then shifted into the news business it would be fascinating to figure out when that happened what year was it that that news became reality tv I think it switched. To, I think you can certainly point to when Fox News went on cable and was in basic cable all over the country, and Rupert Murdoch was willing to lose a lot of money in order to get into all those houses. Yeah, he lost $500 million a year for, uh, for five years, I believe it was. Yeah, and, um, and, 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 and he did have some news mixed in it. Right, and that was in the late 90s, as I recall. Right, right. It was in 96 it's, or 97. It's become, it's become largely now... People on sets. Yep, yep. 
Yep, and and that's and that's a really really good point. And the and the uh, the, the reality TVification of the news uh, is the thing that I mourn the most. I I've, I've thought about writing an op-ed about it. You know how terrible it is that they're just always inviting people on to offer their opinions about the news rather than going on to the next story. I'd like to know what's going on in Yemen. I haven't seen it reported in the news. I'd like to know what's going on in the Middle East. I you know I heard the police want to indict Netanyahu, and he's he's not letting his government indict himself. Um, you know, I mean, there's all kinds of stuff going on around the world that I'd love, love to know about. Duterte, uh, you know, in the Philippines, he's, he's got some, some challenges going on right now. But, you know, some, go ahead. There are some amazing people out there. Uh, I'll mention one of them, uh, Amy Goodman with yeah. Democracy Now! Still yeah. does real journalism. That's right. She is the Walter Cronkite of our age. She really <laughs> and truly is. And really? she's, and she's as, every bit as deserving, if not more so, uh, of credit and respect for what she does. Um, and she does a great job. Bob, I got to move along, but thanks for the call. Great talking with you. Linda in Bellevue, Washington. Hey, Linda, what's up? Hi, Tom. I'm going back to your point about how much democracy dies without a free media. Yeah. And we have the same thing happening here in Seattle. Um, one of our stations, KEXP, has canceled our only local and state news media. It used to be a small student-run station called KCMU, but then Paul Allen made a big donation, and in 2014, the station was transferred to Friends of KEXP, so it was rolled into that Experience Music Project, Mm -hmm. and he managed to fill the board with his buddies, so they're developers and hedge funders, you know, our local millionaires and billionaires. So we have the same problem, because now we don't have a station that addresses local problems and things like, you know, sustainability in Washington state and people who are challenging our local and state government. And here's my question for you. Um, It's my understanding that the FCC requires public radio stations on public airwaves to serve the public. How can um, people protect and maintain their local stations when they're up against the, their local oligarchs, basically. Yeah. I don't have an easy answer for that one, Linda. Um, you know, I've, I've seen the same thing in less... <sighs> destructive is not quite the right word, but in the same, in a, in a, whatever, in a less destructive form, with uh, uh, NPR. I mean, uh, here in Oregon, the Oregon Public Broadcasting, OPB, we used to be, this show used to be on... I think about a half a dozen radio stations in Oregon. Uh, this is back, you know, five, ten years ago. They were small stations, but they were scattered all over the state. I mean, we had a voice all over the state in addition to us to a signal here in in Portland, which we lost. And now we have again with X-Ray FM. But all of those stations, all of them have been acquired by OPB. They've got a huge budget, large donors and, and public broadcasting, you know, the They'll give you the news, sort of, but they really, there are some issues that, that just like corporate news, that they won't touch. You know, mm-hmm. net neutrality, they, they're not, they're going to try to deal with that as if there's two sides to it. Climate change, they're starting to talk about it more now, but, you know, for a long time it had been kind of verboten. You had to have both sides. Billionaires, should corporations be considered persons? Should money be considered free speech? Things like that. You just, you don't hear anything about so I'm very concerned. I don't have an easy answer. I think that if we were to, again, start enforcing our antitrust laws, step one, and I'm not sure how that would apply to something like OPB or NPR, number one. Number two, 
make changes to the 1996 Telecommunications Act, which allowed, you know, prior to that, a single organization could only own a certain number of radio or television stations in a state or in a given market, and it was fairly narrowly circumscribed. That got blown up, and that has led to this huge, these huge media companies. I mean, prior to the 96 law, I think their channel had something like 40 stations around the country, you know, and then they went to 1,000. I mean, just boom, just like that. So these are starting points. And then bringing back the Fairness Doctrine, which did not demand that if a station has a liberal on, they have to have a conservative on, but required two things. Number one, if the station did an editorial, like Sinclair is doing right now, where they're taking a political position, if it was the voice of the station, just like Sinclair is doing, then they had to give equal time to an opposing voice number one. And number two, they had to serve the public interest. And the way that that was understood to be most easily satisfied was not with public service announcements. Those are typically used when you can't sell advertising, but rather was through the news. And so at the top and bottom of every hour, the lo your local stations would carry typically national news at the top of the hour, no local news at the bottom of the hour. You know, back in the 70s, when my first real job in radio, WITL in Lansing, uh, you know, we had a, a five uh, as I recall, a five-person newsroom. I mean, we were providing news all the time. And mm -hmm. in fact, maybe it was seven people. This is a little tiny station. And I doubt they have a single person there. In fact, I doubt there's any news people working in radio anymore in Lansing because they're all owned by out-of-state companies, you know, all the yeah. stations. So uh, these are the things that I would do. Linda, thank you for the call. Excellent point. And I'm kind of bummed that I don't have an easy answer because this has been a creeping, just like Orban, you know, it took Orban, he came to power in 2011. That was seven years ago. It's taken him seven years to own all 500 of the major media outlets in, in Hungary now. The newspapers, the radio stations, the television stations, and the major websites. And, then, and none of them are actually owned by Orban or his party. They're all owned by billionaire friends of his. We're moving in that same direction. This is not a safe thing for this country. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Tom Hartman here with you. And on the line with us is Mike Farrell. And I was going to play this video before I brought you in, but then I just kind of blundered into it. But hey, welcome to the show, first of all. Thank you very much. I'm actor, nice to talk to you again. Yeah, it's great talking with you. Actor, activist, humanitarian, author, um, and the president of Death Penalty Focus. I saw this little 30-second video on, the, on YouTube, and it just blew me away. Let me just play this here for our, for our viewers and listeners. I've seen too much killing, and not just on TV. Since 1976, over 1,400 women and men have been executed in our prisons. Some were later found to be innocent. In California, 743 people in cages on death row wait to die. 60% are people of color. 20 states where people are safe have no death penalty. Why do we? It's a dark time in America. Join me in asking Governor Brown to declare a moratorium on executions and commute all death sentences to life in prison. For a just, moral state, end the death penalty in California. This is remarkable. The website is deathpenalty.org. The Twitter handle is DP Focus, as in Death Penalty Focus. Mike, tell us about Death Penalty Focus and about the work that you're doing. Well, it's an abolition organization, uh, you know, a 501c3 educational organization. We've been, I've been the chair for 20 plus, 25 years, I guess now. Wow. Um, president, I should say, chair. We have a new chair. Um, president of the board of directors. And we've been. We've been working, it's sort of in an uphill slog, as you know, Tom, with the uh, 
the public kind of wedded to the notion that the death penalty is uh, somehow justified and appropriate. But we've um, worked through education and um, as much outreach as we could do legally, as well as um, some uh, two attempts to put forward initiatives here in California, where we have the largest death uh, row in the nation, um, to just uh, waken, waken people to the fact that, um, you know, the death penalty really brutalizes us all. It's racist in application. It costs a hell of a lot more money than does keeping prison, people in prison for the rest of their lives, if necessary. Um, but, uh, but it, and, and it entraps and, and kills innocent people. So it's, it's simply a blot on everything that we believe this country is about. And um, more and more we've come to the, un- we are coming to the understanding, we as a people are coming to the understanding that we really don't need this and it's not serving us. Yeah, I think that, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but of the OECD countries, the 34 uh, developed countries in the world, I think we're the only one that still has a death penalty, aren't we? Yes, that's right. The, um, the European Union has given it, as a matter of fact, in order to become a member of the European Union, you have to agree to give up the death penalty. When I started this, and it's not just me, but when we, I should say, started this, uh, of the 190, say, organizations in, that the recognized as such by the United States, recognized as such by the United Nations, about 30 were abolitionist states and the rest were using or at least had on the books the death penalty. And today it's reversed. Uh, today there are only about 35, I think, killing countries. Um, and In the uh, entire world? In, in the world. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's remarkable. Um, there's been, you know, George Herbert Walker Bush being, uh, having died this weekend and being buried on Wednesday, um, mm. There's been a renewed conversation, particularly among communities of color, particularly in the African-American community, about how consequential um, Bush's decision in 1988 to use the Willie Horton ad in order to, uh, to, to become president, how consequential that decision was. Because in large part, what it did is it uh, caused the Democrats, specifically Bill Clinton, uh, who became president four years later, to to conclude that the, the that in order to beat a Republican like Mike Dukakis had failed to do, you had to be you know tough as nails quote uh, tough on crime and right. that meant cracking down on people of color, cracking down on welfare for people of color and cracking down on and 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 you know beating your chest and and roaring about you know the death penalty which is mm-hmm. mostly applied disproportionately applied to people of color and that was the story in many regards of the Clinton presidency you know right through minimum oh, mandatory sentences and all this kind of stuff um, are we and, and and we've kind of hung out in that place ever since I was expecting Obama to reverse a lot of this stuff and he and to the best of my knowledge he didn't um, but it seems to me that outside of the the, the angry white um, uh, echo chamber that exists in right-wing hate radio and Fox News, which is perhaps 20% of the American population, um, and, and Trump world. Outside of that, it seems like Americans uh, left, right, and center are, are waking up to the obscenity of the death penalty. Or, or am I reading this wrong? How, how do, no. what, what does it seem to you like the trends are going? And do you, be, and do you agree with that analysis of that 88 election? Oh, indeed. Um, it wasn't the first, obviously. I mean, we've been doing this for years, but uh, it was the most egregious in the modern era, I think. And 
Um, from that point, the death penalty used to be what was known as the third rail of, uh, of uh, democratic politics. You just couldn't touch it. You couldn't say that you didn't like it. You couldn't say that you opposed it. You, you really had to be, as you suggest, tough on crime and killing all the people. And Clinton went to, down to um, Arkansas and presided over the execution of Ricky Ray Rector, a brain-damaged man who didn't know that he was actually being executed and left the dessert for his last meal in the cell from which uh, he was taken for when he returned. Wow. Um, so, it, but yes, we, in the last 10 years, we have now had 10 states, Washington State being the most recent, um, give up the death penalty, um, some through legislative action, some through gubernatorial action, um, and always with the result being that instead of the crime rate rising, as people suggest, number of murders rising, it's been just the reverse. Um, so people are, re- and, and the savings in money, and I hate to put a dollar and cents uh, a tag on the issue of life, but in terms of um, the, the expenditure of tax money, people have found that you get much more bang for your buck by doing the right thing with your tax money instead of you know, wasting it on killing people and maintaining the kind of systems that do such harm, not only to the people that are executed, but to the people who are doing the executing, the people who we deputize to uh, to uh, take lives in our name and uh, suffer for it. Yeah. Did you did you see uh, uh, Michael Moore's next to the last movie, Where to Invade Next? No, I haven't seen it yet. In in if I if I may recommend that to you, um, in that movie there is one the the one part of the movie where I actually started crying sitting in the theater. In fact, I'm close to it just thinking of it. Was where he went to Norway and looked at their prison system and talked to them oh, about God. how they treat their prisoners and and their yep. thoughts on the death penalty. And it's uh, it is so powerful. I mean, you know, it's just so powerful. If if, if it was possible to get Michael Moore to even give a, you know anybody permission to to extract that clip and and spread it far and wide, it would be so. But but anyway, what what can we do about this? We're talking with Mike Farrell, the actor, activist, humanitarian author, and president of Death Penalty Focus. Deathpenalty.org is the website. DP Focus is the Twitter handle. Um, you know, people who are listening or watching right now and saying to themselves, you know, yeah, this really is a big deal. Um, what do I do? Well, one thing they can do is, as, as I suggested in the in the spot you played, uh, is contact Governor Brown. Uh, Jerry Brown, we all know, philosophically opposes the death penalty. For some reason, he has refused to stand up on the issue since he's been in office this second time. He didn't support either of our initiatives in 2012 or 2016 to do away with the death penalty. Um, he didn't oppose it, but he didn't support it, which right. is, would have been all the difference. Um, but what he can do now in the next four weeks, he's going to remain in office, is 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 uh, a number of things. He can simply declare a moratorium on death, say it is wrong, and begin the process of commuting sentences of death to sentences of life. Um, this would be a legacy be builder. The, pardon me? This would be a legacy builder for him. Absolutely, I think it would it, it would be something that would accrue to his his, his place in history in in, a, in an extraordinary way. Because, as I said before, California has we have seven hundred forty three women and men on our death row in California. Wow. That's almost twenty five percent of the entire country's uh, death row, 
And if he were to end that, it would not, it would elevate him in the status in, in, in every way you can think of. Right. But it would also begin a process that I think is inexorable. Uh, it's happening anyway. Oregon probably will be next. Kansas is looking at it. There are so many of these states that have come to realize it serves them not at all. Um, but I think Brown's action really could be the coup de grace, if you will, right. for, uh, in, in this to this uh, to this awful policy. So uh, people can figure out how to contact uh, Jerry Brown, particularly if they're not Californians, through deathpenalty.org. You have that information on the sure. website. Yes. yes okay. Indeed. Great. So that that's a that's a great one. And um, you know, I'd say you know, track down that that YouTube clip and share it with your friends. And uh, great organization um, that, that that you're doing here, the Death Penalty Focus, Mike Farrell. Mike, thanks so much for dropping by today. My pleasure, Tom. Nice to talk to you. Great talk. It's always great talking with you, Mike. And and this is such a such a very very important issue. It's literally life and death. Thank you. Indeed. With all the recent news about online security breaches, it's hard not to worry about where my data goes. Making an online purchase or simply accessing your email could put your private information at risk. You are being tracked online by social media sites, marketing companies, and your mobile and internet provider now that the Republicans have destroyed net neutrality. That's why I decided to take back my privacy by using ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN has easy-to-use apps that run seamlessly in the background of my computer, phone, and tablet. Turning on ExpressVPN protection only takes one click. ExpressVPN secures and anonymizes your internet browsing by encrypting your data and hiding your public IP address. Protecting yourself with ExpressVPN costs less than $7 a month. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com slash Tom. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S vpn.com slash T-H-O-M for three months free with a one-year package. Visit expressvpn.com slash Tom to learn more. You know, here at the Tom Hartman program, we have basically, we, we're creating basically three programs identically at the same time. We've got the normal commercial program uh, where we sell advertising, and that goes on our commercial radio stations. They hear that, and that pays for most of our operation. We have our television uh, program that is carried by Free Speech TV, and we do fundraisers for Free Speech TV, and a small amount of that money comes back to us, which helps us provide that show to Free Speech TV. So that stream has its own uh, revenue stream in it. And then we also provide a nonprofit radio show with no commercials in it that's completely nonprofit compliant to our Pacifica affiliates, to the stations all over the country, nonprofit stations. We pay for that one because we don't charge them by your support at Patreon. And in exchange for that, over on Patreon, you can get the full three-hour show, archives of the show, and special clips like this amazing clip that we just, we're just now putting up. The Six Ways America is becoming a third world country. Check it out, patreon.com slash Tom Hartman. Let's check in with Talk Media News and find out what's going on in the world today. Our report today brought to you by GoatsForTheOldGoat.com and Loving What You Do, Ellen Ratner's new book. On the line with us is the chief foreign correspondent for Talk Media News, Luke Vargas. You can follow him on Twitter at The Courier. And uh, Luke, I, I understand that uh, Gina Haspel finally testified to the United States Senate. What did she tell him and uh, how did they react about Khashoggi? Yeah, some, some crucial details about the CIA director's testimony. 
to members of the Senate today. One of the biggest, most pronounced things is that she only spoke to Senate leadership, which was sort of a compromise reached by the White House between them and, and, the, and the leaders of the Senate. What we've already seen is that this is backfiring. You know, Haspel was supposed to testify to the full Senate last week ahead of that vote about whether to cut off U.S. support or advance a bill that would cut off U.S. support for the war in Yemen. And the White House said Haspel, the only person who had heard the Khashoggi merger audio, would not be able to attend. That already raised suspicions among lawmakers. Now, at the last minute, the White House said, look, the full Senate won't be able to hear about this. It's never good when I know Rand Paul is like not the voice of of uh, all that many people in the country, but I do think he does speak for some of the, the mentality among the backbenchers, even within the Republican caucus, who feel like they're being shut out here. Yeah. He said today that, you know, this he was furious that he was barred from hearing about this. And those that were in the meeting don't sound like they've really been comforted. Quite the opposite. You saw Lindsey Graham come out and call Muhammad bin Salman a wrecking ball. He said his assessment is now that the Saudi crown prince was directly involved, you know, complicit in the murder. And finally, his sort of, you know, money quote is that he, quote, cannot support arms sales to Saudi Arabia. And, quote, as long as bin Salman is on the throne, Bob Corker basically saying there's also difference between daylight and sunlight between uh, last week's uh, testimony and this week's. So you're getting this Hmm. dynamic, I think, that's coming up in the Senate right now in particular, and I think it's visible today on Muhammad bin Salman, visible last week on the Yemen vote, and I think it's actually going to come up in differences on trade down the line. But it's that some Republicans in Congress, Tom, are really starting to feel, especially at the leadership level, like they're basically being misled by this administration, the cabinet, the White House. Sure. Uh, and, know, and, and there's probably a reason their own party. Right? And there's probably a reason yeah. for that, Luke. I mean, uh, your nose is deeper into the news than mine is, uh, I think, on most days. But it certainly looks to me like uh, Jared Kushner having to get a billion dollars worth of financing for his 666 Fifth Avenue building, which he ultimately got from Middle Eastern interests aligned with Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia and aligned with the UAE. I think it was specifically out of uh, the UAE that the money came. But these are Jared Kushner's people. I mean, this, you know, he's he's like in tight with these people. And also there's this strong relationship between Benjamin Netanyahu and Israel and and uh, Mohammed bin Salman. So you've got, you know, Republicans who are getting kind of whipsawed. Israel wants to keep Saudi Arabia strong and safe. Um, Saudi Arabia, you know, controls six or nine percent of our oil. I forget which it is. And then you've got people inside the administration, senior people inside the administration, specifically Jared and his wife, Ivanka, whose financial survival depends on this royal family. So, uh, you know, at what point do Republicans say, you know, we're going to pull the plug? You're right. You're not going to hear many uh, Senate Republicans go on Meet the Press and complain about the things that you just identified, but they're well aware of them. And they're and they're watching over the last few months as people who were previously seen as sort of adults in the room, people like Pompeo and the Secretary of State in particular, who might have been seen as Um, You know, if you could get them in private testimony, would be able to kind of give you the truth about what's going on within the administration. Pompeo was lying through his teeth this last last weekend on TV. They're finding that you have to contort yourself so much to explain away decisions, which are often made with, you know, by Jared Kushner or by the president for a whole host of different reasons other than they're the best move for, you know, the establishment or sort of for mainstream foreign policy thinking and for the government. And so yeah. I think that's made those people, they've lost credibility now. And Republicans, I think that will impact 
their perceived sort of loyalty to the president, particularly as the Russian investigation continues. I mean, we can, yeah, you, I agree. You can see that in many respects. To, to what extent is the Qatar pulling out of the out of OPEC, you know, after having been beat up by Saudi Arabia now for a number of years? To what extent is that going to impact this debate in the United States? And what impact is that having over there? I'll keep it brief. I won't get into too much of the impact in the U.S. But look, Qatar is a gas producer. They only produce 2% of oils, uh, OPEC's oil. So them leaving is mostly a symbolic hit. It's not going to shake up energy markets. But I think it does sort of speak to this breakdown of multilateral frameworks of all sorts in the world today, whether it's at the G20, whether it's even within sort of more narrow economic groups uh, like OPEC, that you know countries are, are preferring to sort of pull out their interests on their own, right, and try and maximize them in a bilateral setting, Qatar versus Saudi Arabia, for instance, as opposed to rallying around these joint calls. And so I think we will see more competition between oil and gas uh, in the Gulf region. And uh, again, maybe we're not, I'm not crying a tear over OPEC losing a member, but it does sort of show you that even when a group like that can't hang together in the world right now, countries kind of want to go it alone or, or in more narrow groups. Yeah, uh, like just before World War One, maybe? <laughs> the, the comparisons are not good ones. Yeah, I agree. Luke Vargas, uh, The Courier on Twitter. Luke, thanks a lot for dropping by. Thank you. Great talking with you. Hello, Tom? Yeah. Hi, this is Anthony from uh, Tehachapi. Okay. Hey, what's up, Anthony? Um, that t- the last guest that you had on that was talking about abolishing the death penalty, mm-hmm. that kind of really hit home for me because I'm recently retired. I used to work in a prison mm-hmm. in Tehachapi, and I actually met a guy that was innocent. In person. Oh my. Yeah. Yeah. There's. I mean, we know that there's a certain percentage of people who are in prison who are innocent. I mean, and the Innocence Project, you know, with the DNA stuff and going back and looking at all these guys who are on death row, finding that Absolutely. there's all these innocent people. I mean, it's just, and we've executed so many of them. It's so tragic. And people believe that the death penalty. If you really want a person to suffer, give them life without parole. I've yeah. met so many inmates who talk used to tell me that they would rather have the death penalty after they've been in there twenty, thirty, forty years. They would rather have the death penalty and execute than be in prison for that such a long, you know, list of time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, we just we really need to uh, to be doing something about this. This is this is. Thanks a lot for the call. Thank you, John. Yeah, good talking with you. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Fair and only slightly unbalanced. Tom Hartman here with you, speaking the truth to the multinational corporations. Really around that you didn't know about. Thanks so much for being with us today. It's a consequential time in the history of the United States, in the history of the world. I mean, everything from climate change, which is the history of the world, to, uh, you know, uh, is Donald Trump going to go to jail? And are we going to reform our uh, you know, our systems that have been so corrupted by Republicans on the Supreme Court and in Congress. It's big stuff, big stuff. And you need to play a role in it because democracy is not a spectator sport. So get out there and get active. Tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. Have a great afternoon. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.